listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. This is our 10-minute mystery edition, a little slice of intrigue in the middle of your week. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our storyteller and journalist, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everyone. You know, there are some mysteries that can never be officially resolved. In cold murder cases like tonight's story, the suspect is dead and can't be brought to justice. But sometimes a theory is strong enough that even authorities are satisfied enough to close the file. Such is the case with Donald Martin, a Cincinnati police officer cut down in the line of duty in 1961 by an unknown assailant. In 2005, two homicide detectives who weren't even born when Martin was killed decided to recreate the murder, retrace the investigation, and probe a family's dark history to find an answer that everyone seems satisfied with, even if it can never have that final judicial closure. The research in this story I owe to John Bortline, who reported on the case for Cincinnati Magazine in 2006. Back in 1961, Donald Martin was a young patrolman with the pieces of his life all falling into place. He was 29, living on the west side with his wife, Gail. Donald Martin was born in Kentucky in 1931 to Claude and Allie Martin. He came of age as the country entered war with Korea, where he served 12 months of combat duty before being discharged with the Korean Service Medal and three bronze stars in 1952. Four years later, he finished the police academy and joined the Cincinnati Police Department. His resume put him at six feet, 200 pounds, and listed his interests as baseball, swimming, reading, and working around the house. Don married his wife, Gail, in 1954, and they settled into a home on Foley Road, a quiet street in the Price Hill neighborhood. A neighbor, Bob Ellerman, told Cincinnati Magazine that when he was eight years old, he remembered how Martin used to take out time to throw ball with the kids in the neighborhood and how he was always playing pranks on them. Martin's wife was secretary to the chief of detectives, Lieutenant Colonel Henry Sandman, but in 1961, good news caused Gail to quit her job. The pair had just been approved to receive a new baby through the Protestant Orphan Home. Ellerman said Martin announced the baby to his neighbors and even took the kids into the nursery they had prepared for the new arrival. On the evening of March 10, little Bob's dad, Gene Ellerman, invited Martin to have a drink with him to celebrate the baby news. But Martin said make his a Coke. He had to work that night. In anticipation of adding to his family, Martin wanted a larger car, and he asked his supervisor, Sergeant Bogosian, if he could stop at some of the car lots on his beat if his night shift was quiet enough. Sergeant Bogosian said sure. Martin's beat was the Pendleton neighborhood along Reading Road, northeast of downtown. Back then, Reading Road was a main thoroughfare and home to several businesses, including downtown Lincoln Mercury. Having an officer swing through darkened car lots was more public service than a personal favor anyway. And so well into his shift, about 3 a.m., Martin used the radio in his cruiser to tell police dispatch he was leaving his car for a walk through the lot. Minutes later, a carload of men who were returning home from a night of gambling in Newport 
witnessed what happened next. Martin was standing with his hands in the air. A man was standing behind him with a gun. Suddenly the man stretched out the gun at full arm's length, point-blank range, and fired two bullets into Martin. A moment later, a third bullet rang out. The men turned their car in the direction of the fallen patrolman, but the man who had shot him turned his gun toward them and fired again. The bullet struck a car next to them. The men turned away, but they were able to flag down a police car that was coming down the road, and an officer made it to Martin while he had just enough life's breath to mutter, I've had it. The men were able to flag down a police car that was coming down the road, and an officer made it to Martin while he had just enough life's breath to mutter, I've had it. Martin was taken to General Hospital and rushed into surgery, but two hours into the operation, he died. Meanwhile, officers infiltrated the business district looking for clues. Even off-duty officers came in to volunteer their eyes and their expertise. Detectives could see there had been a struggle between Martin and his killer. A copper Cincinnati police uniform button had been torn from his jacket. An ordinary white button, presumably the killer's, was near it. The white button had a red thread hanging from it. Investigators guessed that Martin had surprised the man at the car lot and that during the struggle the man was able to get Martin's gun. Martin was shot three times with his own revolver. It looked as if he had tried to make it back to his car to call for help when he was shot again in the back and then finally in the head. The next break in the case came soon after. Northwest of the crime scene, in a neighborhood known as Mount Auburn, a patrolman found Martin's gun in a garbage can in an alley behind an apartment building on Dandridge. They also found a gray jacket and a red and white flannel shirt wrapped in a white pillowcase. The shirt was missing a button. Investigators checked the tags in the shirt and the pillowcase, hoping to trace them to a specific dry cleaner or clothing store. They even circulated pictures of the jacket in the neighborhood, hoping someone in the area might recognize it. Nothing came of that effort. The FBI analyzed hairs found in the shirt pocket, but that confused matters. The FBI said the hairs belonged to a black man, but the witnesses said the man who had shot Martin was white. On March 14, Martin was laid to rest. At his funeral at Concordia Lutheran Church, Reverend Arthur Scheidt slipped in a quest for information. This was no monster who committed this crime, the minister said. It was a man. One of us here might be a friend or a relative of the man who stooped so low as to commit this crime, which so tragically ended the life of Don Martin. But no one came forward, and the trail eventually grew cold. In 1965, four years after the murder, the records on the case of Donald Martin were moved into the cold case closet. Of course, there was plenty of speculation on the case. Stories passed down through generations. The most popular theory was that the killer was a career criminal named Frank Murph. One month after Martin had been killed, Murph, a 30-year-old living in the Mount Auburn neighborhood where the gun was found, 
was sentenced to nine months in jail for violently resisting arrest after being caught shoplifting. In that incident, Murph had managed to disarm the patrolman that was arresting him. Murph was black but light-skinned. Could that explain why someone in the dark would mistake him for white and satisfy the FBI analysis of the African-American hair on the discarded clothes? And then something that made Murph even more of a suspect. In 1965, he was shot and killed while trying to disarm a police officer during a botched robbery in Indiana. Even so, police could never tie Murph to the death of Officer Donald Martin. The case languished for 44 years until February of 2005, when something caused police to pull Martin's file from its dusty box. A woman came into the downtown police offices with a disturbing story. She told detectives Jeff Scher and Kurt Ballman that her health was failing and she needed to get something off her chest, something her former husband had told her four decades earlier. In 1963, she was a newlywed, one who was about to learn that her new husband was a violent alcoholic. One night, during a whiskey-induced rant, he told her he had once shot a cop. The woman said he told her that he and a friend were breaking into a train car at a Cincinnati railroad yard when they were surprised by a figure in the shadows and that they both pulled guns and shot him. Then he told his bride if he ever repeated the story to anyone else, he would kill her. The detectives pulled Martin's file out to take a look, and the details didn't mesh. But once that file was out of the box, it was not going back in. Detective Ballman told Cincinnati Magazine, When we were going through the evidence, I pulled out Don's uniform and police hat and realized it's the same kind we wear today. I got teary-eyed. I knew we had to give it a shot. Detectives Ballman and Cher were both born in 1963. That was two years after Martin was killed. So they decided to forget everything assumed about the case and start from scratch. Very quickly, they closed the book on the legend of Frank Murph. Turns out he was in jail when Martin was killed. A detective had learned that early on, but that detective died in 1962, and so he wasn't around to correct the record when people kept bringing up Murph's name. Ballman and Cher tried some new technology on the old evidence, but they kept striking out. They couldn't get fingerprints from the murder weapon or the clothes. They went to the crime scene to get a feel for what the night must have been like, but the area had been completely changed thanks to the interstate coming through. Next, they decided to interview the old retired detectives who had worked the case. One of them was Cherry Schimpf. A year after Martin's death, Schimpf was a detective in the Juvenile Bureau when the brother of a suspect in another case offered to trade the name of a cop killer if it would benefit his brother. The kid gave a name, Walter Baker Walls. Walls was a 29-year-old with a long rap sheet. He claimed to be a member of Satan's Disciples, a motorcycle gang, and that he had ties to organized crime. Detective Shemp followed up and talked to Walls, who was serving time in the Ohio State Penitentiary in Columbus on a burglary conviction. 
Walls was short, stocky, and had slicked back black hair. He looked a lot like the man described by those eyewitnesses. The clothes that had been discarded in that trash can, they fit Walls to a T. Andy failed a lie detector test. But they could never tie him to the evidence. And attempts to get people close to Walls to talk failed miserably. Everybody was afraid of him. When he was finally released from prison, he continued his criminal career and was even there in the 1969 murder of his wife at the hands of his then-girlfriend. Walls died of cancer in 2002. Over time, however, the idea of Walls as a suspect disappeared from the record. He fell through the cracks of history, and everyone liked Frank Murph for the crime anyway. Sharon Ballman put Walls front and center, starting with a visit to his daughter, Anna Dove. When they first asked to speak to Anna, she said, this isn't about my dad killing a cop, is it? Dove went on to tell the detectives that she was a teenager and an eyewitness to her mother's murder. You'll recall I said Wall's wife was murdered in 69 by Wall's girlfriend. To keep his daughter from testifying against his girlfriend, Walls once held a handgun to his daughter's head and threatened to kill her, just like I killed that cop, he told her. Now, it was 2005, and Walls had been six feet under for three years by now, and that was enough to encourage other family members to speak up, and they did. As detectives Cher and Ballman worked their way through more interviews, others talked about how Walter Walls bragged of killing a cop. Walter's own brother, William Walls, said his brother had told him he was only trying to break into a car on a dealership lot to steal a battery when a police officer confronted him. He said he disarmed the officer and shot him with his own weapon. William Wall said his brother told him at the time there were two other accomplices with him, but they were both dead. One of them was another Wall's brother, Jesse. The second was a man named Cadillac Charlie, who was now resting in a shallow grave, having been killed by Walter Walls to eliminate an eyewitness to the death of Officer Donald Martin. The detectives even tracked down Brenda Anders. She was Walter Wall's girlfriend, the one who had killed his wife in front of his teenage daughter. She had served eight years in prison for that crime. Now, in 2005, she told police Walter told her about killing a cop. She even took cops to a house on River Road where Walter Wall supposedly killed Cadillac Charlie. Thanks to the work of detectives Ballman and Cher, the Cincinnati Police Department considers the case closed. They put together this story of what happened in the early morning hours of March 11, 1961. Brothers Walter and Jesse Walls were hanging out at Ozzy's, a bar on Reading Road that night. They had walked to the bar. Neither had a car in running condition. They called Cadillac Charlie for a ride and suggested driving around down to see if they could find a car battery to steal. They ended up at the downtown Lincoln Mercury dealership. Walter went for the car. Jesse stood on the sidewalk as a lookout, and Cadillac Charlie waited in the car. Walter was removing the battery when Officer Don Martin pulled his patrol car into the lot adjoining the dealership. 
Martin got out of his cruiser and started browsing the cars for sale. When he saw Walter Walls, the two men fought, Walls grabbing his thirty-eight caliber revolver from Martin's cross-draw holster and shooting him in the chest. As Martin turned to run for the cruiser, Walls shot him twice more in the back and then a fifth execution-style shot to the head. Cadillac Charlie sped from the scene, leaving the Walls brothers behind. The car full of men returning from that gambling trip came upon the scene, and Walter Walls shot at them. They sped away to find police. Walter Walls fled on foot until he reached Dangerage Street, where he dumped his clothes and the gun. Jesse Walls fled in another direction. In his official review of the Donald Martin homicide investigation, Hamilton County Prosecutor Joe Dieters wrote that he was satisfied that, and here's a quote, there is a reasonable likelihood of a conviction for aggravated murder against Walter Walls were this evidence presented to a jury. Although we cannot bring criminal charges against Walls, I hope your investigation brings some sense of closure to the family of Patrolman Martin. Well, that's it for our midweek 10-minute mystery. We'll see you here Sunday for our next regular full-sized Ohio mystery episode. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your week. And may all of your mysteries have happy endings. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts.